You're listening to TIP. They're producing this commodity. And unlike any other commodity producer, this is what people don't understand. Like, look at gold miners. They mine all their gold and they dump it. Look at oil producers. They produce all this oil, they sell it. Look at Bitcoin miners. They mine all their Bitcoin. They stuff it on their balance sheet. They borrow more money to buy more Bitcoin. They don't want to sell a single Satoshi of this asset. Boy, am I excited to bring you today's episode with Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is the writer and editor for the Bitcoin magazine and has a passion for Bitcoin, finance, and economics. Aside from his work with media operations at Bitcoin magazine, Dylan operates a consulting business, 21st Paradigm, which aims to assist businesses and individuals to incorporate Bitcoin into their capital allocation and business strategy. During the episode, I chat with Dylan about Ray Dalio's thesis on the long-term debt cycle and how Bitcoin potentially plays into that what the Federal Reserve's playbook is likely to be in the current market environment, why Dylan believes Bitcoin is a better solution for base money than gold, why we haven't seen more public companies adopting Bitcoin as of late, what Bitcoin on-chain analysis is and why it even matters, Dylan's thoughts on the potential for a Bitcoin ETF, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dylan LeClaire as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I have a very exciting guest, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Clay. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk. Let's dive right in and get kicked off covering your background. How did you first become interested in Bitcoin and what led you to end up becoming just so, so passionate about it? Yeah, funny enough, you know, it has a little bit to do with this investors podcast network. Just really, really loved numbers. I was always just kind of a, a problem solver from a math perspective. Growing up in high school, didn't really know what I wanted to pursue, but leaned more towards like the business angle just because of the number aspect of finance and, and econ and all of that. And started really getting passionate about just learning about the financial system, the economy, just investing in general. Like the concept of working for your money versus letting your money work for you was something that just like naturally, you know, attracted me and kind of like fueled my passion for learning the stock market stuff. I was learned a little bit about like Keynesian economics in my own time, like in high school, uh, and went to the University of Vermont for business. And at the same time, I'm learning about this. The ICO bubble happens. I don't participate at all, but I knew of people that did participate, and it was just kind of like the wild, wild west. And it was like you know, I, I knew someone, a friend of a friend, that became an overnight millionaire and then lost everything. And it was like, whoa, what's happening over there? And so as I started learning a little bit more about just markets in general, you know, the crypto side of things wasn't something that I wrote off. It was just, it was on. Honestly, just kind of interesting because like I didn't have a framework to go off of. You know, it wasn't something I immediately dismissed, which I might have if I was 40 years old and had, you know, been in the Keynesian system for two decades. So because of that, I had more of an open mind, had a Twitter account and honestly found, I don't even know how I found Bitcoin Twitter, kind of just stumbled into it, found Preston's show and he wasn't full-time Bitcoin podcast every week like he is now, but he always had an open framework for it, for evaluating it and its role. And so March, 2020 came around and I'm more or less like, I'm paying attention in class in college, but I'm like listening to podcasts every day and like honestly learning more on my own just because that's how I roll. It's not as much structure and more so just like whatever interests me in the moment. And so they kick us off because of COVID that we get sent home and I'm like learning at home from like Zoom, you know, quote unquote learning at the same time while I'm ignoring all my stuff that I'm paying to learn and just learning on the internet for free. And so I stumbled pretty hard into the Bitcoin rabbit hole at this time. I read like a Ray Dalio's framework for big debt cycles. And that really made it click for me where we were. I learned like Austrian economics and what that was from a first principle standpoint. And so I guess you can call it orange pilled, decided to leave school. And really it was about stacking as much Bitcoin as I could was my rationale for it. My parents thought I was crazy, but more or less, that was kind of my decision. And the internet is stripping back the cost of education. And I can see that in real time. And I wasn't going to be an engineer or a doctor. I was going because I liked 
numbers and problem solving. And I was doing that by myself. So more or less just kind of popped around on Twitter for a year or so while I just had a regular manual labor job and kind of parlayed that into a, a role in the industry, uh, doing some media stuff with Bitcoin Magazine. And, you know, about a year later, pretty involved with their market research side of stuff, you know, on-chain macro, the stuff that I really like to learn about. And so definitely a dream come true from that sense, just get to learn and look at markets and charts every day. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that is just from podcasts like yourself and Preston. So very cool story. A lot of what you mentioned definitely falls in line with the path I took. You know, it's very interested in business and finance and numbers. Ended up going sort of that path for a while. And I was also a huge fan of the Investors Podcast Network as well and really took a big interest in Bitcoin when they did. So, like when Preston started talking about it more and more, I knew I had to dig deeper on it. Now, you wrote this fantastic article that pulls all of these ideas from different places, including Ray Dalio's book, Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises, which you mentioned. Your article covered the long-term debt cycle in great detail, which was a concept that Dalio wrote about as well. Could you summarize what the long-term debt cycle is and where we're currently at in that cycle today? Yeah. So the long-term debt cycle, I think a lot of people are like intuitively they're familiar, even if they're not business student or, you know, in the working in finance, they kind of have an understanding of the short-term debt cycle, the boom and bust of an economy, you know, oh, a recession. It happens once every 10 years. Like even if they don't understand the mechanics behind it, it's just something that makes sense. You know, it's just like ingrained in everyone's head, like, oh yeah, we have a recession. And then, but without understanding the mechanics of why that happens and kind of the, you know, the gears of credit and debt that really cause these declining productivity quarters or years or recessions. And so I think what's not really understood is that long-term debt cycle. So, you know, over the course of multiple short-term debt cycles, you'll see if you're kind of in the upswing of a credit boom, you'll see that debt continues to accumulate across various sectors, but the debt load never gets reduced to where it was during the prior kind of upswing. Debt accumulates, malinvestment occurs, a boom happens where everyone feels like they're getting rich, but it's really a lot of paper wealth. And, you know, that malinvestment attempts to get liquidated. And because of this Keynesian system that we're in uh, with central banks, with governments, with fiscal spending, what you see is that stimulative effect come in in the form of additional credit, additional debt to prop up the system. And so over the span of, you know, not 10 years, but 50 years or 100 years, if you want to zoom like way out you see this kind of huge cycle occur. And most people don't really understand it because we've never lived through a long-term debt cycle before. We're all just in one right now. And so, you know, right now we have interest rates at 0%. If you just look at, I think the best chart is the 10-year treasury or the Fed funds rate. You can just kind of see those higher lows of interest rates. It doesn't really take a genius to understand that the cost of capital continues to just fall and it can't be raised to, to higher levels because of the debt burden. And so, you know, approaching that from an investor framework um, and how to allocate your capital and how to protect or grow your wealth during potentially the conclusion of one of these debt super cycles was something that was really fascinating to me because, you know, you have guys like Great Alley will come out and say cash is trash. Well, why is cash trash? You know, what's the reasoning behind that? And the reality is with kind of our fiat system, like if there was a bearer asset that everything could collapse upon, like say gold in the previous system, then that's what you want to hoard. But in a fiat system where there's no underlying collateral except the credit system itself, you have a problem. And it's basically that there needs to be perpetual credit expansion or the entire system collapses in the biggest depression the world has ever seen. And that sounds very dark, but more or less, like if the Fed doesn't step in in March of 2020 and bail out the debt market, that's what happens. You have this unwind of your liabilities and assets, the asset side of your balance sheet falls. There's counterparty risk everywhere. So this is not just an individual, but an aggregate level. The asset liability mismatch causes you to force liquidate more assets, which is a kind of a reflexive doom loop all the way down. And so the obviously the response is, printing more money, more stimulus, more of the same. But where does that lead to? And I think that's kind of where I applied Ray Dalio's traditional framework of find a monetary bearer asset, find a, something with no counterparty risk and a production cost, and applied that to Bitcoin in a way that kind of made sense to me. Your article also references Dalio's video, How the Economic Machine Works, which is a fantastic video for your everyday person to start to wrap their head around this stuff. It's funny... In that video, Dalio states that the long-term debt cycle ended with the 2008 financial crisis, but everyone knows that ever since then, we've just had an additional boom that has expanded the everything bubble, for lack of a better term. 
So my question is, did the response to the 2008 financial crisis just delay the inevitable of this financial reset of the monetary system? Or how do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would preface it with saying that all I'm referencing is history. So just kind of reading it from a historical lens, but essentially, you know, they successfully kicked the can again in 08. And this time it wasn't through interest rate policy because rates hit that zero lower bound. What they turned to was debt monetization or what they called quantitative easing. And they use a lot of these big fancy words, more or less it's essentially printing money. And, you know, there's nuance there where they're not actually printing money, they're printing bank reserves and it doesn't actually enter the system. And it's just taking toxic debt off the bank balance sheets. But what they were doing is essentially bailing out the credit markets in a way that they could no longer do through interest rate policy, which is their go-to lever. They turned to quantitative easing or just essentially stuffing fixed income markets with more money and taking that debt out and and putting it on the the central bank balance sheet. And so we saw that for the last 10 years, essentially, we saw varying levels of quantitative easing. They barely got interest rates off that zero lower bound. We had basically negative real yields for a decade or more. And then they really tried to unwind that balance sheet and the corporate debt markets cratered in 2018. So we saw the Powell pivot. It was kind of infamous. I saw the repo market blowout in 2019. These were all signs that a recession was coming regardless. And then conveniently, and this isn't like you know conspiratorial in any way, but conveniently, the biggest pandemic you know ever comes in and they have to print ungodly amounts of money and it saves states. Like, oh yeah, it's a pandemic. Of course we had to do this. It was emergency measures. I mean, it says the pandemic and you know the great financial crisis 10 years before that was much worse. But the reality was the debt problem, the problem that occurred in 08 was much worse 12 years later. And so, you know, we had all these emergency measures and now where are we? Well, inflation's at 40-year highs. The Fed funds rate's still at zero. The entire treasury curve and really the entire global debt market is negative in real terms from junk bonds all the way to treasuries, stock market at all-time highs. And so like, where do we go from here? And I think that's what a lot of investors are are trying to figure out. Is inflation transitory? Well, it might not be. And what does that mean for, for the assets you hold in your portfolio? So you're describing how these debt bubbles move in cycles where eventually the debt taken on eventually has to come due. But today, with the money printing we're seeing to pay off the current debt, they pretty much have to take on more debt to pay that off, which means they need to keep interest rates low to kind of keep things chugging along. And that's when it seemed fairly obvious to me that something is going to have to give on that front. So I'm curious, you mentioned that these long-term debt cycles move in 75 to 100-year time periods. How is the end of this debt cycle maybe different than the previous one? And how did the previous one even end? Yeah. So, I mean, you can look at it from a couple of different angles. I think, you know, we saw that the Great Depression where like, you know, following the 20s, the roaring 20s, we saw this huge private debt bubble. They were on a gold standard or, you know, a redeemable gold standard, right? So you had those paper notes with gold as that bearer instrument underneath the banking system. And all of that credit creation collapsed upon itself, that paper wealth, and it induced a recession. And obviously there was other variables there like famine and all of that. But what the cause was credit bubble on top of that bearer asset. So that collapse, we go into the 30s and then obviously, you know, have a world war, all this stuff, but we have a monetary reset. They devalued the debt in real terms. Roosevelt did in 1932 by confiscating everyone's gold and immediately revaluing it higher. That was one of the things they did. So that in real terms, that debt burden got eroded a little bit. And then 1944, Bretton Woods the world comes together and says, all right, the US will hold our gold and our dollars are redeemable for gold. And you know, the, the game theory there was, well, the US cheated, you know, more or less with their paper claims on that gold, and countries started to call their bluff, right? Because there's that peg, but who's enforcing that peg? And do they have the gold to back it up? Was the question. And and ultimately they didn't. So we defaulted upon our promise. And so uh, you can kind of look at the end of that debt cycle in a couple of different ways, but really there was a couple of defaults. There was a default in 1932 when we seized everyone's gold. And then there was a default in 1971 when we defaulted upon basically like uh, you know global central banks and their redeemability for gold. And so since then, and I really I like to look at like 1980, 1981 as kind of like that secular top in interest rates. Since then, we've had the greatest asset boom of all time, just a secular bond bull market and a secular everything bull market, essentially real estate equities, anything that benefits from the cost of capital going lower, which is basically every asset. And so, you know, in terms of when that debt cycle last occurred, well, there's a couple of quasi resets, but I think now with a global coordinated fiat currency regime, where it's almost a race to the bottom and you're incentivized to devalue your currency, we're in something that's you know never really occurred at, at this scale. And it's quite unprecedented. Now we've been in this secular trend of 
ever decreasing interest rates. And now we've hit essentially the floor, which is 0%. But I see that countries like the countries in Europe and Japan have negative interest rates. Is that something that's even in the cards for the US? Or what do you think on that front? Yeah. So I don't think it is. I think because given that we're the world reserve currency, we can't have nominally negative interest rates, but what they're attempting to do right now, and this was actually laid out, um, the IMF put out this playbook in 2011. And just it's also kind of Ray Dalio's framework for it. When the debt burdens are this high, what you can do is essentially financial repression by artificially capping these interest rates and letting inflation run hot. So negative real yields are essentially a wealth transfer from creditors to debtors. That's what's happening right now. If you're sitting on treasury bonds and over the last year, inflation 7%, if you received a 2% coupon yield, well, you lost 5% of your wealth. And so you know whether a CPI is a correct measure of inflation or not, essentially during periods of negative real yields, that's what's happening as a wealth transfer of purchasing power, not in nominal terms, because you'll get paid back. If you own treasury paper, I'm almost certain you'll, you'll get paid back in nominal terms. There's no reason to nominally default with a fiat currency like there would be with a gold currency where you just don't have enough of that base metal. But with a fiat currency, they can always print it. And so that's the game theory and incentive for politicians is to keep the money printer going, Burr. And you know, letting those debt burdens erode in real terms is, I think, the game. And so you don't really even need that nominal negative yield to accomplish that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. In reading your article, the obvious difference in opinion between yourself and Dalio is the potential solution. Dalio said on a recent We Study Billionaires episode that a small, say 1% or 2% position in Bitcoin is prudent. While you firmly believe that Bitcoin is the solution, why do you believe so strongly that Bitcoin is a solution to this mess the United States and the rest of the world is in? Yeah. So, you know, obviously someone like Dalio, uh, who's a billionaire, can just have his smug insurance hedge, have 1% and really kind of protect his wealth and not need to, you know, fully allocate to to capture this move. I mean, honestly, he probably couldn't fully allocate his wealth because he has so much of it that it would move the market to a great extent where someone like myself is obviously not facing that problem. But that aside, my thesis is that a lot of people will say Bitcoin is, you know, it's the first iteration of digital currency. How do you know it's 
the one? And my response is, well, it's really not. Digital currency was tried for years. There was multiple iterations of it that failed. And what Satoshi did was basically combined a bunch of different iterations of digital currency, public key, private key, cryptography, all of these things, and put them together in a way that no one had ever thought of before to solve the double spend problem. Basically, value transfer on the internet between intermediaries, between counterparties, couldn't be trustless. There wasn't a way to do it without trusting your intermediary. So with Bitcoin, there was kind of an immaculate conception with digital cash. Not only that, but we have absolute scarcity. You know, Absolute scarcity was never a thing before the advent of Bitcoin. Well, now we have provable, verifiable absolute scarcity in a decentralized monetary system that no one can shut down or no one can stop. And so that is how I think of it in terms of the properties of gold and what do you want to protect yourself in a debt crisis? Well, why do you hold gold? Well, you hold it not because it's a shiny rock and it's pretty. You hold it because it's one, it's it's absolutely scarce. Gold is, is relatively scarce, obviously, but you know, atomically scarce on Earth. Maybe we find some rocks in space, but you know, for the point being, it's it's relatively the most scarce thing we have. It's durable, not very portable, but it you know it does the trick. It's fungible, right? And there's a production cost. It's really costly to go find more gold. Humans have been looking for a long time, so you can't arbitrarily dilute someone else's wealth as a gold holder. You have to put in that kind of proof of work to find gold by either exchanging it from someone else or forcefully taking it. But you know that's kind of a lesson of history. Everyone wants the other person's gold. But besides that, there's kind of a proof of work expenditure for gold. So I applied that framework with Bitcoin and it's, okay, I can hold my own Bitcoin, my own keys with no counterparty risk. There's a provable production cost. And actually, if you dig into the mechanics of it with hash rate, the difficulty adjustment, and this kind of asymptotic supply curve, it's basically the marginal production cost I've concluded, the marginal production cost of Bitcoin is trending towards infinity. And so that people like look at me wide-eyed when I say that, but just if you look into hash rate, if you look into the difficulty adjustment and you look into the amount of Bitcoin that's being issued, the incentive is to basically chase it down with the lowest energy cost all around the world until there's no more wasted energy. And there's a lot of wasted energy out there. So that marginal production cost is going to go the other way, which is up. And so all the things that are desirable in a monetary bearer instrument, when you think of, of gold as money or you know previous monies in history, Bitcoin is the best by far. And so people would think, you know, maybe there's a margin of error there. Maybe there's some flaw in my thinking. And I basically, for better or worse, am, am quite certain that there is no alternative. My question to that is the central banks run the show right now and the central banks own a whole lot of gold. So why can't gold be something someone should hold in this scenario? Or why isn't this a potential solution going forward? Maybe they set up some sort of financial system based on a gold standard again. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that it's probable. I mean, right now what you're seeing is, you know, Russia de-dollarize and they've accumulated gold for the last almost decade. And so gold isn't obsolete yet. And maybe it won't ever be in terms of, you know, having that monetary premium. Like it's not just an industrial metal, like say copper or tin or, you know, iron, there's a monetary premium to gold, the base metal because of its properties. And so will that go away tomorrow? No, but there's, I would say there's a reason why we're on a fiat standard in the first place. And it's because of that trust and that cooperation required on a gold standard. I can't go to the store with a bar of gold and you know shave a little bit off to pay for my candy bar or my gas in my car, right? So what's required? Well, what's required is some you know certificates of deposit, some counterparty holding my gold and, and issuing me some note saying that I own it. Well, we already tried that and it failed. That's what a bank run is. The incentive to kind of create money in the form of, you know, Clay, you deposit your gold bar at my institution and I fractionally lend out two of those notes because I realize that people don't come and redeem them. Like that already happened. And so I think that kind of natural incentive of, of you know, human greed, if you can print money, you will print money is inevitable. And so, you know, if, if Russia came out and said, we have some gold backed currency, that's cool. But like, I don't really trust that you have the gold to do it. And, you know, if you want to prove it, great. But how is that verified? How are those incentives aligned? And I just believe that fundamentally in the a 21st century economy, it's just not feasible to return to the, a metallic monetary standard. So the end of the previous long-term debt cycle was the Great Depression timeframe where we saw asset prices just collapse. So is that a possible scenario in the end of this cycle? Like, Could we see a deflationary bust? And how does that affect Bitcoin? Yeah. So, I mean, if you would just look at what happened over since November, people will say, you know, Bitcoin, it's, you know, the central banks can manipulate it by tightening monetary policy or they pop the bubble. And they're not necessarily wrong in that sense. To a certain extent, central banks still have that lever to kind of control the value or at least the Fed to control the value of that dollar, right? If they tighten monetary policy, well, 
BTC USD, if the denominator is going up, then Bitcoin probably takes a hit. During a credit unwind, Bitcoin's not insulated. But what they can't manipulate is Bitcoin's own monetary policy. And so can a Great Depression type event happen? Well, yes, just with how over-indebted the system is. But again, there isn't that gold standard base collateral for everything to collapse upon. In a fractionally reserved fiat system like we're in today, with all of this counterparty risk prevalent, during an unwind, it just goes to zero. And like that sounds crazy, but money is created in this fiat system through only lending. Every dollar in circulation was lent plus interest. And so if that loan or if that money is defaulted upon, then that money is conversely, it's destroyed. And so what you have is balance sheet impairment across the entire economic system and collateral values falling. And it's just this aggressive unwind. And so that's why you know they have to come in and save the system because they can't let it. And so I believe, regardless of both scenarios, I believe if they let everything unwind, which all of the political incentives don't align with that happening. Well, I still have a monetary bear instrument, Bitcoin, with a provable production cost. And I'm 99.999% sure that a block will come in in approximately 10 minutes or so, and I'll be able to settle this value somewhere in the world. But if that scenario doesn't happen, and they don't let everything completely unwind and go to zero, and they do what their incentives align and monetize the debt, fiscal stimulus, you know, the whole nine yards... Well, there's going to be more money in the system, and I would, you know, bet money that uh, the price of Bitcoin in, in, you know, nominal dollar terms goes up as a result. So, you know, I think either way, you're going to maintain that purchasing power that with the Bitcoin network, it's absolute scarcity and that production cost. Yeah. So essentially, despite us being in the quote unquote everything bubble, there's every incentive in place for them to continue to expand the you know monetary base of the fiat currency units which you know in turn will lead to continued adoption of bitcoin since it has a fixed supply and all of its other attributes yeah 100% and like and it's also needs to be said that like this bitcoin itself through its own kind of adoption is there's a ton of volatility just because of the absolute scarcity of it because of the hodler conviction and and oftentimes the wall of money that comes in after bitcoin breaks an all-time high and the reflexivity of markets and cycles and sentiment and euphoria, and then overlay that with derivative markets on top of it, and things get really crazy. And you see liquidations, and it's just madness. There's a lot of volatility. Now, combine that with the fact that we have a fiat system that's more over-indebted than ever before, and we're seeing, look at the VIX, look at the volatility index in the current system. We're seeing a ton of volatility recently, and it might get even more volatile. So I would say for anyone that's holding this asset, make sure that your mark-to-market leverage, like as a Bitcoin holder for just less than, you know, a little less than three, four years, I've seen multiple, I think I've seen four separate 50% declines. And like at this point, it's just, it's nothing but a thing because my cost basis is obviously a lot lower and it's, you know, rising daily. But if you can't withstand 50% drawdowns, if you're marking that leverage to market every second and you're 2x long, well, you might lose your coins because of that exchange rate risk. I guess that's the one thing that I'd say is that volatility uh, increasingly in the fiat system, but also in this asset class, I wouldn't expect it to flatline out like a lot of people say. And because of that, you know, don't put yourself in a position. The worst thing to do is put yourself in a position to become a forced seller of this thing. Let's transition to talk about institutional adoption. We saw some huge institutional players come in over the past couple of years, notably MicroStrategy, Tesla, and Square, as far as public companies go. But we haven't seen too many recently, at least over the past year or so. Why do you think that other public companies haven't really followed this trend despite the high levels of inflation and monetary easing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the one thing is that from a corporate standpoint, it's not very attractive from a gap accounting standard. If you look at, you know, MicroStrategy or Tesla, they have to mark to market their losses as an impairment when the price goes down, but they don't get to do that on the way up. It's not treated as the cash equivalent. Um, so I think that comes in due time, but it makes perfect sense, in my opinion, to kind of adopt a Bitcoin standard or at least a, a partial Bitcoin standard in this environment. Obviously, you know, you have a bunch of institutions that are interested in 2021 after the price already 6 x and is at 60,000, you know, it's no matter how good the idea is, it's really tough to buy into something that's already gone absolutely vertical. And so I think, you know, maybe not on the public side, I think you see a lot of institutions, hedge funds, Wall Street guys come in when the price is at 30K or, you know, the chart looks kind of bad and say, Harry, I, you know, I'm going to get a little bit of an allocation here. But in terms of full public company adoption, I think we'll have to wait and see. And, you know, as the, the kind of asset class matures, we'll see more of it. But it makes total sense as, you know, the cost of capital in these markets 
again, like MicroStrategy borrowed a billion dollars, $500 million at 0%. It was a convertible bond issue, but they borrowed 0% where 0.5% coupon for six, seven years out and they bought Bitcoin with it. And so just doing the calculation, even the purchase of $57,000, I think they raised and they bought at 57,000 is break even in 2027 is 65,000. So obviously they're underwater now, the stock's getting beat up, but if you can hold and if you're not becoming a forced seller, well, that's obviously pretty advantageous. You're seeing that also with publicly traded miners, right? They're mining all of their coins and they're just using this artificial kind of cheap debt to finance their operations. And that's a new dynamic that we hadn't seen in Bitcoin before, where miners don't have to sell their coins because of this kind of integration with public financing. Yeah, that's one piece I find really interesting is all these public miners, you know, there's Riot, there's Hut, and there's a number of others. They're able to take on these cheap debt loans, like you just mentioned, call it 3% interest, give or take. And they're going to invest in these mining operations that are paying, you know, even if Bitcoin's price stays level, they're getting something like 100% return on their money. And then they're able to take on additional debt to maybe pay off those expenses and they can just hold the Bitcoin indefinitely, which is just insane to think about. Yeah. I mean, if you look at public market data right now, and this won't always hold true, it's up to hash rate and you know the block subsidy and all this other stuff. But the average production cost for publicly traded miners is like plus or minus 10,000. You know, Bitcoin's trading at $44,000. And so they're producing this commodity. And unlike any other commodity producer, this is what people don't understand. Like, Look at gold miners. They mine all their gold and they dump it. Look at oil producers. They produce all this oil, they sell it. Look at Bitcoin miners. They mine all their Bitcoin, they stuff it on their balance sheet, they borrow more money to buy more Bitcoin. They don't want to sell a single Satoshi of this asset. And it's really interesting because when you're thinking about Wall Street and the kind of fiat uh, lending coming with this hard monetary asset and combining over collateralized Bitcoin lending, people say it's, it's so risky to borrow against your Bitcoin. Well, for the lender, it's a no loss business. If I over collateralize two to one and borrow money from you, Clay, you can mark that to market and assure that you lose none of your capital because it's liquid 24-7, 365, and it's in any jurisdiction. And so I think you're going to increasingly see, you know, right now you can get a mortgage at 3 3 or 4%. Well, you can borrow against your Bitcoin at certain lenders for say 7 or 8%. For the longest time, you couldn't do that at all. I think that ultimately, like the Bitcoin collateralized lending space is going to be the cheapest in the world. Like you can go to Goldman and get Fed funds plus 50 basis points on your equity if you're a you know multimillionaire or something. I imagine that that's going to be true for Bitcoin really everywhere because it's a no-loss business once again. And I think that's not very understood. I am not going to lie. I can't wait for the day I can put Bitcoin down as collateral and avoid having to give the bank a large down payment for the loan. That's going to be a pretty incredible development for people that own Bitcoin. Yeah, it's coming. I mean, people are building it. And so it's not well understood, but the convergence of this hard monetary asset with this fiat zero cost of capital world, you know, it's converging faster than people think. And I think that's when things get really, really crazy. Uh, when you have guys that are a lot bigger than MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor, I mean, Michael Saylor is a billionaire, but like, Let's be real. He's not a big fish billionaire. And so when you have a lot of people like, and again, when you're thinking about fiat currency, money is created through lending. So when you go borrow a billion dollars in the corporate debt markets, it's actually like, and this sounds crazy, but it's actually creating money supply. So if Stan Druckenmiller goes and borrows $10 billion from Goldman Sachs and buys Bitcoin with it, well, he's acquiring a fixed supply of this 21 million and creating a bunch more fiat units. Uh, it's called a speculative attack. I mean, like this happens in currency markets all the time, but we haven't seen this with an absolutely scarce asset ever. So there's some pretty big implications here. And I, I don't think a lot of people have walked through the game theory of this all. You know, when I really dug into Bitcoin in 2020, the risk reward to me just seemed so good. You know, the narrative was these four year cycles and the Bitcoin halving happened in 2020. And we did see violent price action to the upside in the later half of 2020, but we actually haven't seen it perform as well as prior cycles. What do you think the difference is between this cycle and the prior ones? Is it just the macro landscape having such a large effect on just the price of every asset? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't lie, the the having and the kind of, you know, the stock to flow model and all that, people hate on that model. It definitely helped make it click for me that like the impetus to allocate to this thing, get in, like I was showing my parents the stock to flow charts and saying like, Hey, like look at what happens after the blue dot. Like, so, I mean, that is definitely a great way to kind of think about Bitcoin and, and these cycles. But I think now with the block subsidy and the, the annual inflation rate at say 1.8%, next having in 2024, the block subsidy is going to get cut in half again. 
again. 3.125 Bitcoin every block will be issued. That inflation rates can be less than 1%. I don't think it has a, a huge impact on the market as much as it did in the, the prior halvings. And I think more so, it's just the state of the capital flow into these markets. So we saw you know, a lot of that institutional capital. And then and it was just probably a couple hundred billion dollars worth, maybe maybe a hundred billion dollars worth of flooding all at once to try to secure this thing. And, you know, because supply is inelastic and not a lot of people were selling, price goes parabolic. Ultimately, you have, you know, some people will distribute. We'll see somewhat of a kind of a distribution. That's what's occurring right now. But under the surface, and this is part of the reason why I love on-chain analytics so much, is you can kind of see these like supply demand imbalances occur in real time. So like, you know, people say like supply squeeze. We're actually like in a pretty tight supply squeeze dynamic right now. But for the last three, four months, what we've seen is marginal selling for the most part from kind of these like macro allocators, right? If you're just thinking about the guys that are trying to ride the like tide of the everything bubble, well, what have they been doing since November, since Powell said, oh wait, inflation's not transitory. Like we got a hike guys, like we, we weren't planning on this. Well, there's like some marginal selling. Well, who's buying? The convicted Bitcoiners that understand this end game. So ultimately, like when the, you know, the macro allocators, like the hedge fund guys, anybody that wants to secure a Bitcoin position, which is quite a lot of people I think in the future, well, they're going to have to buy into a super, super tight supply dynamic. And you have a lot of people that are you know, publicly stating, I'm not selling at any price for fiat. And so we can kind of see like 61% of Bitcoin haven't moved in a year. 86% of Bitcoin haven't moved in the last three months, despite price getting cut in half. Over the last year, price got cut in half twice and it doubled once. 61% haven't moved. And so like that sort of thing, you can't really see that in any other asset class. But also, I think the conviction and the type of investors or holders of really any other asset class aren't this convicted crazy. We don't see that anywhere else. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit more about on-chain analytics. For those who aren't familiar or you know, haven't been following you or Will Clemente, what is on-chain analysis and why does it even matter for Bitcoin? 
Yeah. So with Bitcoin, we basically have this public ledger of property rights, if you want to think of it. And so it's not, you know, it doesn't say this is Dylan's Bitcoin, but in a pseudonymous type of fashion, uh, we can see every single Bitcoin that's ever moved and what address is holding it and when the last time it was moved. We just, we have this ledger of property rights. And so with that, we can do a lot of cool things. A lot like a lot of what we focus on is potential market impacts, but it doesn't have to be market related at all. You know, a type of on-chain analytics is like, what's minor revenue over the last month? Like we can see that and we can pull that data up like this. You can't see that with gold. I mean, you can guesstimate it, right? But you can't see any of these sort of things. You can't see, you know, what's money velocity in the on the dollar standard. Well, you can guess and we can have a group of 10,000 PhDs at the Federal Reserve try to crunch numbers and come up with an answer, but it's not like verifiable and mathematically certain. With Bitcoin, we have that. You can spin up your own full node. You can run it on your laptop or a little little computer this big, and you can look up all this data yourself. I mean, luckily we have companies like Glassnode and Coinmetrics and all this do this data for us, but we can see underneath the surface what's happening in the Bitcoin market. And it's pretty fascinating. Like those four-year cycles that we're talking about, throughout a lot of the history, what you saw was really this convicted Bitcoiners. You saw like this supply squeeze dynamic really build up into a parabolic bull run, whether the chart looked good or whether it's some kind of macroeconomic dynamic. What you saw was like this real supply side liquidity crunch, if you want to think of it like that, formed at the same time wall of money hit the market. And so what happens? Price goes parabolic. And so people like think it's seemingly random that these blow-off tops happen, these parabolic runs happen, but really... A lot of the cool thing is that we can see this stuff happen on chain. We can see when price goes parabolic, a few million coins that accumulated at the depths of the bear market distribute. And you know, like, yeah, hodl, but like if price runs up 20x or 100x, maybe some people take a little bit off the top and we can see that happen. And you know, the marginal seller, the marginal buyer comes exhausted and price dips. And so that's, I think, one of the most fascinating things about on chain analytics is that we just have a transparency that doesn't really exist anywhere else. Yeah, I do think that's really cool how, you know, the ledger's completely public. Anyone can go out and pull the data and do their own analysis on that. What are some of the most important on-chain metrics that you keep your eye on? Yeah, so I, mean, I think one of the most basic ones, well, maybe not basic, but I think one of the most simple ones and easy to understand is what I like to call a realized price, or you can think of it as realized cap. So market cap is just circulating supply times price for any asset, right? But with a realized market cap, what we can see is every single UTXO, which is the technical term for Bitcoin on chain, we can see when it was last moved. So for instance, Satoshi's coins mined in 2009, never moved. There wasn't even a market price when they were acquired. So there's about a million or so Bitcoin that are presumably Satoshi's that have zero market price. And so because of this in the realized cap calculation, they hold no weighting. Whereas in the market cap calculation, you know, it's a million times 44,000. They count for $44 billion of market cap valuation. What we can see is the relative valuation or ratio of the market price versus the realized price. And historically, right now about that realized price is like $24,000. So you can think of that as like the average on-chain cost basis of all the Bitcoin on the network. Is it a perfect measure? No, because you know if you buy your Bitcoin on an exchange or if you just say cycle some Bitcoin between yourself and wallets that you acquired six years ago today, it may move up the cost basis. But in aggregate, it's a pretty accurate measure of like average market cost basis. And so we can see this ratio of market price to realized price and come up with some pretty interesting relative valuation framework. If that measure ever gets below one, it's usually like generational buy opportunity. So that's what in my research, I often talk about it. I'm like, if we get below 25,000, who knows what happens next? But like traditionally, that's a sell the farm type of an event. So do we get it? Who knows? But in terms of previous cycles, that's the level. Yeah, it's kind of funny. March 2020, I was watching Bitcoin that day. It went down like 50% in one day, in like less than 24 hours. It's just insane to think about. But when you look at the actual fundamentals, like nothing about the Bitcoin network changed. It was continually producing blocks. And it was just the macro framework where there was just a giant bid for dollars. So, you know, if nothing has fundamentally changed about Bitcoin and you're bullish on the asset and you see, look at some of these metrics, like you mentioned, the realized price, you can just identify kind of those generational buying type opportunities. You know, it's really, really cool, I think. Yeah, you're 100% accurate in the, that March of 2020 event. Nothing changed about the network itself. I mean, you had a derivative market liquidation. You had the Dixie go to 100. There was a bid for dollars. You nailed it there. And so at that point, like people were liquidating Bitcoin for dollars because of that denominator, right? BTC, USD. 
I think that that's something that's not going to even really change as long as the global debt market is that size. But in the meantime, you can use these relative frameworks of valuation, whether it's you know the MVRV or we have all sorts of like cool things we can do. Like we can quantify the conviction of hodlers with on-chain metrics, and we can like you know put a whether it's oversold or overbought. And is it perfect? No. Is it going to time tick the bottom at the very second? No. But we can say like you know this is in the fifth percentile of relative valuation. And so it gives a pretty good idea of like risk reward and when it's attractive or not to allocate based on the conviction of of what other UTXOs are doing. Now, Bitcoin whales are the wallets that hold the most amount of Bitcoin. What percent of the supply do Bitcoin whales hold? And is that a concern for you at all? Or how do you think about that? Yeah. So it's kind of tricky with on-chain stuff. I I see a lot of data or reports published and they'll say X amount of Bitcoin. I'm not even sure what it is because I mostly disregard it. They'll say X amount of the Bitcoin supply is held by the top 900 addresses. And are there whales in Bitcoin? No doubt. I mean, there's people that understood what we're talking about today back in 2011 and said, all right, I'm going to mine this on my computer and I'm never going to sell. There are 100% whales. And you know, do they manipulate the market? No, it's a free market and they can buy or sell whenever they want. And that's the beauty of it. But there are people with thousands of Bitcoin, tens of thousands of Bitcoin, maybe even 100,000 Bitcoin. And the beauty is we don't really know if people do their, you know, have their privacy measures and they do it right. But in terms of you know how much percent of the supply whales have, well, about two and a half million Bitcoin are on exchanges. And so we can say like, well, those exchanges guesstimate there's about a hundred million people that use those exchanges or have access to them that have onboarded onto them. So how much of that Bitcoin is to each user? Well, we don't know. And so that's why address analysis isn't always all that accurate. I mean, it's like saying like how much of the dollar supply does the Federal Reserve have on its balance sheet? Well, the Federal Reserve serves a lot of member banks and they serve, you know, all these people. Like it's just not a great way to frame it. And so for that sense, like wallet data, you can do stuff with like tracking whales, right? You can see like, oh, what are whale holdings doing if you filter out and kind of do all this heuristic stuff with exchanges and and all that. But for the most part, just straight up like supply percentage analysis, there's a little bit of nuance there. And so that's why for the most part I I don't stay away from it, but you know, there's nuance there. You mentioned a bit earlier that one of the potential catalysts for the next Bitcoin price movement upwards is Bitcoin spot ETF. We've seen one in other countries such as Canada being released. So what's the holdup with one being released in the US? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure what's on uh, Gary Gensler's mind. There is a Grayscale product, GBTC, that has 650,000 Bitcoin, I think a little bit less than that, which is just an outstanding amount. They were a huge driver early in the bull market of 2020 and 2021. And just with how that fund works and and the redemption structure was very interesting that because it was trading on OTC markets with a premium, you had accredited investors that could go and give Grayscale a hundred bucks of Bitcoin or or dollars. And if say the GBTC product was trading at a 30% premium on these secondary markets, they could go and get $130 of GBTZ shares from Grayscale immediately, but those had a six-month lockup. So all these Wall Street books went to Grayscale and just immediately marked up their books with a 20, 30, 40%, whatever premium it was, and scooped up all this Bitcoin and this GBTC trust. But everyone did that. It became a crowded trade. And now, funny enough, GBTC trades at a 25% discount to net asset value. So it's not like an ETF structure where every dollar of inflows means a dollar of allocation to the base asset, like you know, an S&P 500 ETF would be. So what is Gary Gensler doing and why is he holding up? I'm not sure. And I think there's a whole kind of another realm of things that he would have to tackle in the crypto space in terms of what's a security, what's not. And I, I believe that he's made it pretty clear that Bitcoin is not a security in his eyes after you know teaching a class at MIT and all this other stuff. So I mean, I think ultimately you should really work to hold your own keys and utilize self-custody best practices. But that spot ETF, when it comes, I think it's it's not an if, but it is a when. It's going to unlock a whole bunch of institutional capital that's going to flood into this. And it's going to be probably a pretty big catalyst for the next bull market whenever that comes. Is there any possibility that an ETF could lead to Bitcoin's price being artificially suppressed like we've seen in the gold market? 
Yeah. So in October, we actually had that futures ETF pass, right? So there is that CME market. And interestingly enough, unlike other futures products, say on Binance or BitMEX, uh, there is no kind of Bitcoin settlement on the CME structure. It's like actually they use like cash collateral, treasury collateral uh, for these Bitcoin futures. And so the CME tethers its price to a spot index. Interestingly enough is that you know we're not seeing that Bitcoin settlement occur in these future markets like you are seeing on other uh, derivatives exchanges. So that unlocks the question, well, is it going to suppress the price like gold? And I, and I believe because we have kind of these this final settlement occurring 24-7, 365, the ability to withdraw your keys or, or the ability to kind of arbitrage spot prices, right? That gold doesn't have, if you just think of the settlement process with gold, any dislocation in futures price was say, say the futures ETF was being shorted or, you know, there's a CME product and people were trying to, you know, artificially suppress the price. Well, I think that would be reflected in, you can look at the, there's a spot market Bitcoin price, and then all of these derivative contracts have their own price that's traded free of spot. Oftentimes when you see, say, like a huge volatile move to the upside or downside, what that is essentially is that's forced selling or forced buying on a derivative product that got margin called. We can see that happen in real time where there's a liquidation engine, there's forced buying or selling, shorts are getting squeezed, longs are getting you know liquidated. Whereas you don't see that that settlement, that mark to market every single second occur with say a gold ETF. And so if there was some kind of price suppression on say a paper product like CME, I, what I would look for, and I don't see this at all, would be a really different price relative to spot price. If CME was trading at 43 and the, the Bitcoin price was trading at 48, well, one, I wouldn't want to be buying Bitcoin on CME because I don't know if I can redeem that and, and take that off the exchange. But two is, yeah, you know, we're going to have a true and kind of a free and open market somewhere around the world, whether that's with baseline dollars or stable coins or whatever it is that will reflect that kind of that free market dynamic that we don't see with gold. Yeah. The thing with Bitcoin I keep hearing is that it's just so easy to take personal custody of it. You know, if you buy gold, you know, you need to take physical delivery. You need to have it shipped. You need to pay for these transport costs. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can just instantly have it transferred to your account. So, you know, people are going to want to be able to take custody of that Bitcoin or at least have the option to, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I've, I haven't told too many people this. I actually bought gold in March of 2020 and ordered a coin, an ounce coin. It was like 1700 bucks an ounce. And the entire process took two weeks. It feels cool in your hand, but I realized like I didn't want it a month later. I was like, I should have just bought Bitcoin. What am I doing? I went to sell it and I got arbed on the bid. I got arbed when I paid for it, 50 bucks above the spot market. And then when I sold it, I think I sold it for like $100 below the spot price. And at the same time, gold was like rising, but I lost money on the investment because of just how like the dealers worked and, and how slow and clunky everything was. It was just a nightmare. I was like, I'm never ever buying gold again, other than just like trinkets. Like this is like the worst form of liquid collateral that I can think of. It's not even liquid. It's like very illiquid in that sense, if you're doing it with a small amount. Dylan, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and appreciate you coming on. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you? Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. This was a fun riff. You can find me on Twitter at DylanLeClaire underscore. That's where we kind of connected first. It's super fun just kind of throwing ideas out there and interacting with the community. So uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you having me on. It was awesome to connect and I'm sure we'll see you around out there. Awesome. Thank you, Dylan. Hey, man. Catch you later. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.